This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today wanted to be in broadcasting from the age of 12. She went to Isha College in Surrey before skipping university and starting at the BBC as a producer aged just 19. There, she climbed the broadcaster's ranks and in 2001 became assistant editor of the News at 6, 10 and 1. She moved into politics in 2014, becoming the BBC's editor for political news, working with figures including Laura Koonsberg, John Pina and Norman Smith. In that role, she produced the infamous Kitchen interviews with Ed Miliband and David Cameron, where the Labour leader showed off not one, but two kitchens. And the then Prime Minister said he would not stand for a re-election if he won in 2015. In 2017, she was promoted to head of BBC Westminster, and in October last year became the executive editor of politics for The Broadcaster, managing all of their political journalism. She has overseen political coverage of three different prime ministers and plenty of blockbuster moments along the way to referendums. My guest today is Katie Searle. Thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, we really appreciate you finding the time. You're joining us remotely. Are you in Westminster? Are you at the BBC? Yep, I'm in Westminster looking out over the, the lovely river and uh, very happy to be here in the sunshine. Lovely. So on this podcast, we'd like to begin by just talking about your early life, what you did before your career, which is why I've asked you on today. But as a question we ask everyone... Uh, I feel as, if, as in your senior role in journalism, I won't be really able to get much past you. Um, some have said it's a slightly leading question, but would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Uh, yeah, very happy, actually. I was, I was definitely one that looked for fun, and I don't think I've really changed uh, since then. I remember lots of lovely times with my family, lots and lots of friends. I was quite ill when I was tiny, and I sort of wonder whether that's given me a uh, determination to uh, to get on and and fight through any kind of competition. So I always wonder, kind of wondered that, but luckily um, I got over that illness. And went on terrible at school. Really, really tried, but just was rubbish. And despite my very clever sister that I tried to compete with, so I uh, tried to tried to get through. And but as you said, Katie, I'm just slightly odd because I developed this obsession with broadcasting from about the age of 12. So I always kind of knew what I was going to do. So um, skipped university and joined the BBC as soon as I could. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this ambition um, from the age of 12 in terms of broadcasting, because we've had various figures on this podcast. Therese Coffey, the Work and Pension Secretary, told us her childhood ambition was to be a mechanic nun. We're not sure that exists. You never know. When you're talking about broadcasting, were you watching lots of current affairs programs as a child were your parents putting them on and were you thinking about being front of house or back of house because most people don't really know what the behind the scenes bit are the age yeah it, well it was a bit of a sort of um yeah sort of less exciting kind of start to it really because actually I was drawn less to the news but to DJs so I was always into to fun and into dancing and uh, developed a great love of capital radio and on very prominently at the time were uh, two DJs, Kid Jensen and uh, Mick Brown, who later on, when I got to be a, bit, a little bit older, kind of more like 16, 17, I used to see them on Isha train platform. 
And such was my kind of desperation to be in their kind of world. I went up and spoke to them. And so I got to a point where I was travelling every day with Kid Jensen and Mick Brown on the small journey from Isha to Surbiton. And they went off to Capital Radio and, and probably thank God that I got, I got off after one stop. But it, it led to this kind of obsession with broadcasting. And so by the age of, sort of 15, I was doing work experience at Capital and that's where I linked to news because I, I was put on the programme called The Way It Is, which, you know, I thought was just the pinnacle of exciting broadcasting. Um, although the guy there, when I tried to get a job, said to me, you should go and work at the BBC. So he obviously knew something that I didn't at that point. <laughs> and I mentioned the introduction and you've, anyway, you've explained it there that you didn't go to university. Was that an active choice? Well, you mentioned that at school, perhaps you didn't feel like you were particularly academic. So was it something you considered or did it never really appeal to you? Maybe one for your sister. Yeah, exactly. My sister, I don't think I was ever going to catch up my sister. So, um, yeah, I, I did think about it. And actually, I regret it because, uh, you know, I would have had loved to have had that kind of choice in my life. But my sister always says to me, well, the BBC was your university. And I think there's something a bit a bit of that, actually, because I, you know, I did join when I was 19. And, you know, I thought it was unbelievably exciting and just learnt from right from the beginning. So I started as something called a radio production assistant, which was basically kind of sectarial work. Um, but it was right in the middle of the World Service, which is where I started. And on each floor, as you went up Bush House, and my, my job was on the top floor, there was a different country represented from all the language services. And coming from the commuter belt of, of Isha, I thought this was the most glamorous of surroundings and uh, just just wonderful. So I, you know, I was, I was taken by that from the moment I joined. Now, obviously, I want to talk about the really serious, great work you've done, but um, you mentioned that the BBC was a, a bit, in a way, like a university experience. Does that mean there was lots of socialising when you were a 19-year-old there in terms of going out? Did you get to mix of any of the, the big names at the time? <laughs> well... You know journalists, Katie, you know, we're, we're not afraid to go out and, and have some fun. And the source of, or, you know, many, many stories begins at, a, uh, you know, can begin over a glass of wine. So, yes, I, I think, you know, that's certainly been the case through my life. Actually, mixing when you're young and you're mixing with people that you find incredibly impressive, you know, may have seen on the stage and screen yourself um, and, and learning the trade from them is quite something. So it was good and I formed, you know, I met my husband there. I formed a kind of real bond with, with a group of people when I moved over to Radio 4 and worked on Watto and, and PM. And, you know, that, that instinct of competitiveness. And I always think, you know, journalism is, is driven externally but very much internally at the BBC from competitiveness of, of having to get the story and doing the best job you can. And, and with that comes great camaraderie. And as a 19-year-old when you joined there... What was what was the BBC like at that time? In the sense, we hear a lot now about diversity drives. Were, were you, were you uh, in a minority as a young woman there, or was it actually quite mixed at that point? No, I would, I would say I was definitely in a minority, and I think you know we've come a long way since. You know, and there's nothing wrong with this at all. But I was definitely surrounded by pretty much everyone I met was Oxbridge, and again, coming from a school where no one I knew went to Oxford or Cambridge, that also seemed incredibly glamorous and impressive and you know it was great to kind of learn learn from people actually but I do remember one day I was trying to get a promotion I think I'd done three years or something at the world service which was essentially 
secretarial work, but, you know, you learn a bit of production and you do a bit of other stuff around the way. I said to one of my managers, I tried to get, you know, up the rang to be a researcher, and um, she said to me, why don't you leave and study Sino-Soviet relations? Which I thought was a really odd thing to suggest, as I'd never shown any interest in Sino-Soviet relations. But she thought that would be the route to my success in life. But fortunately, I ignored her and kept applying for jobs and, until I, I got on the ladder. Yeah, I'm imagining I've had this a bit when you uh, entered, was it, you know, people asking what college you went to and you think maybe they're talking about your school and actually. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Well, there's a lot of that through life, isn't there, really? You know, and uh, surprise that you haven't gone to university. And even now, actually, loads of people say to me, oh, God, really? I, th- I really thought you would have gone to some posh university. And it's one of the reasons I was kind of quite keen to talk to you about this, actually, because I think I'm very pro-determined women getting on and being successful in their own right. You know, I, I think, look, it's great to go to university. I hope my children go to university, you know, and I'd love them to go to Oxbridge. But I also think that's not the only requirement in life. And determination and working hard is incredibly important. And, you know, and being a bit of a fighter, which takes me back to my illness, I think, keep going, you know, and, and fight the fight every day to, to get on. And, you know, that's kind of what I've done for 30 years, really. And you don't do your Soviet degree, but yet you're here today. So um, talk us about how you eventually did get that promotion from what you're talking about, which, yes, had some of the broadcast aspect, but had some secretarial work. So how did you move from there to a situation where you are suddenly looking at, you know, the news at six, ten and one as an assistant producer? What what was that jump like? Um, Well, it took a while, but, you know, I think I always believe in work and I'd say it to the people I'm working with, you know, and especially young people. I think if you're going to be successful in a career, and Katie, you know this, I'm sure more than anyone else, is you've got to be really interested in it. And and working hard on a subject is, is kind of easy if you're really interested, and it's not very easy if you're not. So I think being naturally drawn to broadcasting was the first instance, and finding, as I say, as I described the world service and the kind of incredible kind of new environment that I found myself in there, and actually just learning off people and mixing with people that, you know, are now on the air still and you know I was looking at the news last night and one of the one of the correspondents Paul Adams was on the news last night and he you know he was there on my first day Andy Bell who's now political editor of Channel 5 was there on my first day you know there's lots of people that I've known for a very long time who were great to kind of work together and learn off and so soon I you know after three years or so I um, became a researcher but I jumped over to Radio 4 and I did about 10 years in radio and that was terrific. And I think probably the real change was when I was doing the Today programme. So I was relatively young when I joined the Today programme, can't quite remember, I think I was sort of mid to late 20s. And to be outputting Today at that time was, you know, I was pretty young to do that. And under Rod Little, who uh, you'll know well, was both com- completely inspiring to work for and completely crazy, which I'm sure he'd agree with. But I, I liked his style of demanding success and you know and hammering the table you know over what we were going to do in the morning and it was a great kind of training ground to work alongside him and have fun and remembering all these things that are coming back to me (laughs) have you got um I mean I'm sure I really just would love to know I mean have you got any particularly memorable moments from working with Ron as a boss he did do do a couple of things he's going to kill me for saying I haven't spoken to him for years he used to have in his his office pictures of medical procedures um, from medical magazines, 
stuck all over the office, which was I, still to this day, I, don't, I didn't really understand why. <laughs> but um, I'm sure he's got an explanation. Uh, but he was great, actually. I mean, he was, you know, as I say, he was sort of, he both shout and scream and sort of demand better content and the Today programme has to be the best in the morning and right so but I do also remember crying in his office one day at at about half past four and saying you know none of my interview requests had come off you know the programme was going to be a shambles the next day and um, he just opened the drawer and got out a bottle of whiskey and said oh sod it let's just go let's just have a drink (laughs) which was that is better than a shoulder to cry on (laughs) exactly so uh, yeah that was it that was a learning experience definitely it was good fun and also, I imagine very early hours. Or... Yeah, difficult hours. Yeah, I mean, the Today programme is, is really brutal, you know, to, to do. Particularly the night shifts, you start about eight in the, in the evening and go through. And it's particularly that time, the morning, when the presenters come in three, four o'clock in the morning, where you're absolutely at your lowest in terms of energy levels and, uh, and then trying to get yourself going for the programme itself. But it was definitely the moment when I kind of, I learnt the most, you know, I was working with John Humphreys and, and Jim and Sue and, you know, these people that, you know, again, I'd sort of heard and listened to for many, many, many years. You learn a lot from people in that environment. And I, and I wondered, do you ever have moments, just because we do talk about things where you want to frame it as imposter syndrome or just a self-doubt, where today programme is clearly seen as well it is the flagship current affairs program in terms of the the bbc radio so i mean when when you're just thinking i don't know enough about this how can i brief this how are there any ever uh, panic moments like that oh god all the time yeah um and for years after um, i think it's only now that i'm much older you know i'm kind of i'm not saying i'm confident every day but i'm i don't get that kind of daily sense of oh god i better not say that because i'm going to look stupid i've you know left that behind a while ago but definitely when you're younger definitely when you're working with people who you know you've literally in john Humphrey's case watched reading the news as a child it's quite a big thing to come into but i think you know one of the things i would i would say to kind of younger women listening to this is a you do learn with you know you get a confidence from experience of course you do but I think the moment I kind of changed my perspective on my career was with the moment when I just thought I'm not going to be afraid to say what I think anymore because a everyone gets it wrong you know so it's okay b um, having a view on stories particularly I think as a journalist often they're subjective and having a room full of people arguing over a story is actually a really kind of creative process and one of the things I like working here at Westminster is you know there's all the big beasts and you can really kind of have it out and sometimes you might start you know an argument feeling really 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 keen on where you are on this and end up in a, in a slightly different place and I think that's okay so um but yeah when I was um 27 I probably wouldn't have said that to you and um, was there a particular moment when you, was it like an epiphany uh, when you decided that um to that, you know that your voice should be heard and you didn't need to second guess or is it a slow build and um, there sort of was a bit actually you know but it was probably took till I was about 35 to get to it which is sort of shameful saying that out loud but you know what it's like Katie you work with lots of very experienced and very talented people and I think particularly as a woman it's easy to feel like you haven't got a voice and I think over probably happened over a period of a year or so, but it was you know it was a kind of bit of an overnight thing in that sense, in that I just thought actually my voice is as valid, and actually you're better at your job if you have a view, and I think particularly leading a newsroom, being an editor, you've got to have a view, and I've always said that to my team, even if as I say you end up sort of changing it 
come in and have a view and have a confidence of that view to start with. Hopefully you'll be right by the end of it, but have a view. Otherwise, you might as well just leave the room. Now, I want to talk about your role now and well, really since you moved into Westminster and that was what you started to oversee. But I suppose for listeners, could you talk us through a bit, now you're executive editor, but in terms of what you've been doing over the past decade or so, making those decisions is it about deciding what the story of the day is because most people when they think about the BBC and Westminster will think about someone like Laura Koonsberg who's front and centre so you uh, look after her you're her boss what are you doing behind the scenes well I would say first of all have a view you know to go back on that because I, I think you have to so not only do I you know work very closely with Laura but I lead the entire team here and that's true of you know the news content but also all the programmes and online and everything. And so I think you get used to sort of developing quite a strong sense of where you are with a story. Um, and it helps that I, you know, talk to Laura all the time from very early to very late and um, we'll discuss the stories and what she's working on. And, you know, I obviously talk to, you know, contacts and of, of my own as well and kind of develop an understanding of that. So in terms of explaining the job, yeah, it's it's different things at different stages, really. I think in principle, it's sort of thinking, what do we think the story is today? But it's also, if you're looking at one day, where is this story going this, by this evening? And um, particularly the 10 o'clock news and what are we going to achieve through that day to move it on? I want to do more than just sort of straightforward coverage, which is the meat and drink of, of news. It's reporting what's happened. But, you know, as all journalists, we want to sort of make make sure that we're moving the story on and saying something different by the end of it. So, you know, that's your kind of first principle. And then you're looking at how you've developed the team and use your resources to the best that you can to make that happen. And did you want to move to politics early on in your career? Because clearly current affairs is on all the, uh, you know, the news, the bulletins, uh, when you're doing that more broadly. But was it ambition to focus in on politics? Actually, it wasn't really. And I think in a way that was a good thing because I, I did. So I did lots of politics across the Today programme and Watto and everything. Of course, I did about 10 years of radio and then I got to about 30 and thought I'd better learn some TV. And that's the great thing about the BBC is that it gives you so many different opportunities. And um, having done 10 years of radio, I thought I'll go and see what TV's like. And actually that was a really, really, really creative process. And there's nothing like outputting the 10 o'clock news on a big night, you know. And I remember being there in charge of the 10 when um, Mandela died. And, uh, you know, and it, we, I think from memory, we had about 20 minutes to turn around the programme. I think it was a budget day. So we, did, we just about put everything to bed and and, <laughs> and in it came. But um, again, working with fantastic colleagues like Hugh Edwards, who can just turn that round and make it look, you know, smooth on air is amazing. I did that for a number of years and then this came up. And, and actually, I was really sad to, to leave the 6 and 10 because of the standing of those programmes, you know, is such an um, immense thing to to be able to output those programs you know it's a huge honor but when this came up I had or if I had if I'd had to sort of finger any any interest it would have been politics but I came here as a relative novice and I sort of probably I will probably look down at myself now um, looking at my knowledge now but at the time I sort of wore it as a slight badge of honor because I felt that and we all we all know what we do here at Westminster Casey which is you can get consumed with the detail you know shall we put it put it that way and I always used to take the mickey out of them because they're all you know lovely great colleagues of mine but they were like well I think you're fine you know select select committee x said y and you know and you know well you know there's an si next Tuesday you know and uh, you know I literally didn't know what they were talking about so I have an expression in, in my work saying from the sofa so I always think well what, what does it look from the sofa I'm sitting on the sofa tell me something I care about and so I tried to sort of translate 
what we're doing here to something that means something to people. But I would also fully acknowledge that I've now, seven years in, completely moved to one of those nerds that I took the mickey out of seven years ago. <laughs> Has your husband noticed a change? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, endless, endless discussions, yeah. yeah. That's really interesting the, from the sofa, because I, I was going to ask, basically, when you're looking at, as you say, I think there's plenty of criticism of, of it as a mindset people you see it as the Westminster bubble we've had lots of people criticize the Westminster bubble it can be quite tricky if you are in Westminster covering everything in Westminster not to become too Westminster centric so it's from the sofa the mantra of trying to work it out because even you know we are speaking on the day that there is a Dominic Cummings factional row with Boris Johnson and often the spectators clearly has a slightly different audience but by the time you've gone through the various factions you think most people will have potentially just completely switched off so so on when it comes to news like that I suppose how do you think about taking it in a short period of time to a mass audience Mm. yeah I think that is part of the creative challenge I think you know you've got to just remember why it's significant beyond you know in this case these two characters and why it matters and I think you know I agree with you I think there's a lot of scepticism sometimes and sometimes with colleagues you know that aren't based at Westminster there's a little bit of kind of well oh you guys are all off again doing that stuff that doesn't really affect the real world well you know it's my job and Laura's job and others here to to say well this is why it matters and actually it really really does and then explain it I mean there is a real challenge with presumed knowledge you know we're still quite guilty of that covering the house there's you know you just get used to language and it becomes so obvious to you you forget that actually the audience don't know it but I think you know what's been nice over the last few years is just actually the level of interest from the audience and you know that when you, if you spend a weekend and every time the phone rings, your friend's saying, you know, oh, tell me about what's happening there, you probably get a good idea that a lot of people are interested. So, it's, you know, people can say on one side of their mouth, oh, well, politics, that's a bit dry and boring. And then the other is, you know, oh, what's really happening? And what's he like? And what's her like? And what's the real story? You know, and, and then, one, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you think, OK, I think there's something here. And the audiences in Brexit particularly, and of course the pandemic, which is more than just politics, obviously, but have just been enormous, you know, which makes you feel, OK, someone's, someone's out there tuning in. I want to talk about social media enthusiasm um, before we finish this podcast, but I just wondered... Obviously, at the BBC at the moment, there's a bit of a drive to move programmes beyond London. So we're seeing some current affairs programmes that um, could be dispatched to other parts of the UK. But I just wondered, in terms of, I suppose, striking that balance, how much do you think you can really do that with BBC politics as is based in Milbank, Westminster? We obviously have Parliament in Westminster stating the obvious and all things around that is still very much where you know think tanks will base themselves where a lot of the action is when people aren't stuck at home because it's illegal to leave the house yeah it is a challenge I mean lots of people sort of said to me over the years and why don't you get out more and and I think it's really really important that we do do that and we do need to talk to the audience for all the obvious reasons I think as you say Katie there is in the end a undeniable truth that Westminster is in Westminster. So, uh, you know, you have to be here to reflect the, the main events. But one of the things I set up actually about three years ago was um, create a post that's based out of London um, for Alex Forsyth to get a feel of beyond Westminster. But I do think we can do more. And I think one of the things that our new DG wants to do is, you know, as you've seen, is create a much bigger reflection around the country. And I think I kind of personally, I just, I'm really bought into it because I think if you don't have a full reflection of your audience, who are you broadcasting to? And I think, you know, we can do some work on that. Yeah, and I suppose in a way, one of the pluses of the pandemic is because we've kind of 
to a degree move past studios it means you've got fewer limits in terms of getting guests from different parts it matters less if you're based in London you could be as long as you have working wi-fi you can really zoom in from anywhere yeah exactly I think I think that's right I mean we're all going to change aren't we the way we're working and and that's going to make you know the diversity issue much easier to reflect as well now just a few I suppose final things when it comes to various elections you covered uh you know referendums you mentioned the fact that people have been a lot more switched into politics i think we've all felt that with our friends particularly during that brexit period i was wondering there's also clearly been a downside with that we've all read the reports when laura coonsberg was alleged to have to have personal bodyguards for a period and i wondered how do you feel that things have changed in terms of I suppose, criticism from the public or that kind of atmosphere around the Brexit period where it did feel very febrile for lots of journalists, particularly the BBC. We've all seen the words BBC bias frequent times. Has that calmed slightly, do you think, now Brexit is done? Yes, it has calmed down a little bit. But I think you're right. I think we've changed. Everything's changed. And to that extent, I don't think anything will go back to how it was. You know, And if you think about the last 10 years... The way we reflect stories and cover stories, uh, the speed of change is just extraordinary, and that's all driven by social media. I think if you look at some of the stuff around the election in 19, the stories that were sometimes just changing, you know, I mean, it's, it's no exaggeration, really, to say sometimes in seconds, you know, you'd put something out and then someone, no, it's not that, and you'd, uh, you know, and you'd kind of veer one way or the other. So I think, you know, you've got to kind of take a bit of a calm approach to that, not get too drawn into the kind of hysterics of Twitter, if I can put it that way, and just remember kind of what we're trying to say and what, you know, going back to what I said before, is sort of having a clarity of what you think the story is, having something that makes sense to the, to the audience from the sofa. Because if you don't, you could tie yourself in knots about what you think this particular drama is about. So, you know, you do, that's why, you know, I guess you have editors that you can just say, okay, let's just take a breath on this. Where do we think we really are on this story? Because I know that's that shiny object there sounded really exciting, but actually, does it really matter? So there's that. I mean, I think in terms of, you know, the other stuff about the BBC, the BBC is always going to face criticism. And, you know, I think that's okay because we do what we do and defend our journalism as as you would expect. And I suppose you've got the from the sofa rule. I wonder if you have a bit of a think before you tweet rule. (laughs) in in terms of your team and things because it does feel broadly and I don't mean this in a BBC specific way that often I think we've all fallen a bit guilty to it if, if you jump too quickly on this stuff it's often where errors can come up yeah no definitely I mean I, th- I think really the the rule whether it's written down or not is that you only tweet what you would broadcast because it's just another form of broadcasting and I think people find themselves in difficulty when they forget they're not talking to their friends um, now I have a final three questions for you. One thing I want to ask is we're talking about making those judgments and editorial judgments, and often it's a debate at the BBC. You've had a long career. I just wondered if looking back on it, there are any days when you think you did get it wrong? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, you know, as a journalist, what's the biggest thing you fear, Katie? It's missing a story, right? So it's when the phone rings and your boss or whoever says, was that a bit of a miss? 
and and you know in the core of your stomach that that was a miss and there's nothing worse and um, that was particularly true of when I was doing the turn actually because you'd you know you there's a mindset when you're doing bulletins that you've worked really really hard to get it in the right place and all the filming's been done and it's all marvelous and you're about to present it and then someone phones and says oh there's this story and you're so sort of desperate to kind of hold on to this lifeboat of creativity that you were so proud of there's a temptation to say you know unconsciously think oh well I'm not really sure that's very good you know so I won't do that story and then you wake up in the morning and hear it all over the morning output that you know you've you've turned something down which you know I don't think it happened to me too too, too many times with it it has happened so that fear of missing the story I think will stay with me until I'm dead and buried and have you got quite used to politicians or you know party HQs being annoyed at you because clearly the BBC is the thing which uh, lots of uh, directors of communications on both sides we know for example the former director of communications at number 10 Lee Kane was really focused on those news bulletins so if uh, a party doesn't like where it goes uh, I imagine you're the person who gets quite a lot of flack. Yes, the phone rings a a great deal from early, mostly really, really early, actually. And then through the day. And yeah, I mean, it's fine, actually. I think when I first joined, I found it, yeah, more difficult than, you know, you get used to anything. And there was quite a lot of shouting and screaming. But I, I sort of think in the end, people are just doing their jobs. And I just never, ever take it personally. And sometimes it is difficult, particularly if you've had a really long day and you think, you know, I just really could do with not being shouted at at this point. But, um, you Don't know... Don't just make um, it go to voicemail. <laughs> yeah, that's also tempting, but you never know if it's a story. So, you know, you can't miss it. So, uh, you know, so I'm always tempted to take the call. And, you know, I think it must be very frustrating for government, actually, to, you know, look at headlines that they don't like and not be able to change them. So, you know, they're doing a job and I'm doing mine and, and that's kind of how we, we agree to disagree. Um, now, final two, I just want to ask about GB News. It's coming soon. A few BBC beasts have, have headed that way. Do you think it's going to be healthy competition? Can, do you think that it's going to affect how the BBC works at all? You're going to take note or how do you see it? Yeah, no, I've, I'd like to give you a more interesting answer, Katie. But I'm, you know, I just, as I said to you earlier, I think competition is good, whether it's, exter- it's external or internal. You know, I wish them well. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll watch with interest as to how the channel does and, uh, you know, see if we can continue to beat all our competitors which is always the aim and then the final thing I want to ask you is just something we ask everyone on this podcast which is that what is the worst advice you've ever been given clearly in your career you're talking about how sometimes you're having to push against obstacles and perhaps initially uh, being in a minority or not the you know seen as the most likely person to rise up through the BBC so what's the worst advice you can have ignored it you can have accepted it well I think I've already given it to you I think it was the um leave and go and do Sino-Soviet relations <laughs> there we go thank you very much for joining us today thanks for listening and if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts please do get in touch just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk podcast